We are grateful to the Royal Institute of Philosophy and the British Society of the History of Philosophy for sponsorship of this event. Good evening and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event. Our topic this evening is Susan Stebbing, her ideas and her philosophical legacy. Let me introduce our speakers. Mike Beanie is Regis Professor of Logic at the University of Aberdeen and Professor of History of Analytic Philosophy at Humboldt University. Siobhan Chapman is Professor of English at University of Liverpool and Peter West is a Teaching Fellow in Early Modern Philosophy at Durham University. I'm Claire Moriarty and I'm a Postdoctoral Fellow at the Philosophy Department at Trinity College Dublin. Siobhan, I'm going to come to you first. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about Susan Stebbing's life and her biography? Yes, thank you, Claire. And I think it's a great place to start because Stebbing's life context is really significant in the story that we're going to be talking about this evening. Um, her, her life, particularly her, her adult life and her, her career, took place against a time of incredible change, philosophical change, but also social and political change. And those, uh, those areas are all reflected in, in her work in, in ways which I think we'll be, we'll be discussing this evening. She was born in 1885 in North London. We don't know a lot about Stebbing's early life and, and her childhood. Uh, we know that she was the youngest of six children and the family seemed to have lost both parents relatively early in her, in her life. Certainly by the time she uh, was ready to go to university, she was in the care of a guardian. Stebbing didn't have any formal schooling until she was 15. That wasn't actually that unusual for middle-class Victorian girls at the time. But in Stebbing's case as well, I think this was heightened by the fact that she was considered to be a delicate child and it wasn't thought that formal education would be good for her at an early age. You might be asking what delicate would mean in that context. Well, yes, I mean, I think the Victorians were quite keen to, or quite quick to label children, particularly girls, as, as being delicate. In fact, Stebbing did have some significant health issues, which I'm not sure to what extent and how early these were picked up on. But she was certainly considered not to be sort of physically able to take on um, serious study at, at an early age. Stebbing suffered uh, throughout her life with what we know, now know to have been Meniere's disease, which is a disorder of the inner ear. Uh, health issues were a feature throughout her, her life and increasingly disability uh, was something that she had to had to deal with. Uh, those who knew her in later life recall that she had mobility issues and sometimes was unable to, to walk at all um, and increasingly suffered from loss of hearing as well. So we can trace, I think, these later uh, issues in, in her life to this early undiagnosed delicacy, as it were. Despite that, however, she did succeed in getting her own way and, and going to Cambridge. She went up to Girton College in Cambridge in, uh, in 1904. I think even then, however, her choice of subject was constrained by what was considered appropriate for a Victorian young woman who was considered to be delicate health. Some accounts say that what she really wanted to study was classics. Some accounts say that what she really wanted to study was a science degree. But certainly those two were both considered by her family to be too demanding for her physically. And so she went up to study history, uh, which as I say was not her was not her first choice. And in fact, she didn't stay with history for very long. A few years into her studies in Cambridge, she came across what we would now call philosophy. It was moral sciences at Cambridge in the early 20th century. And she immediately switched her studies over to moral sciences. After that, in uh, 1908, however, she left Cambridge and moved to London without completing her, her studies in moral science. That might sound like a bit of a strange thing to do uh, mid-degree subject, but the reason for that, I'm, I'm pretty 
certain is that in those days, uh, as a woman, she would not have been able to take a degree in uh, at Cambridge. Cambridge, in fact, didn't uh, award degrees to women until after Fleming's lifetime. It was actually 1947 when the first woman graduated from Cambridge. But in London, she would have been able to take a degree. And in fact, she graduated in 1912 with an MA from King's College London in, in moral sciences. Now trying to start out in an academic career, Stebbing took, as, as many people do, a variety of um, short-term, temporary, part-time posts, teaching and, and lecturing. Very relatable. Well, indeed. We all, we've all been there, haven't we? Um, and during this time as well, I think perhaps uncertain as to whether she would actually be able to achieve uh, an academic career. She set up with a, a couple of friends uh, a girls' school in London the Kingsley Lodge School for Girls. Although Stebbing did, of course, go on to have a a full and successful academic career, this was an incredibly important aspect of her life from then on. She stayed with the school, she stayed with that group of friends throughout the rest of her life and was was heavily committed to the school. It was, in effect, her home and and this became her new family for, for the rest of her life. However, she didn't stay as a school teacher. In 1920, she did finally achieve the goal of a lectureship in philosophy, um, and that was at Bedford College for Women in London. And she stayed, in fact, at, at Bedford College for, for the rest of her career, the rest of her, of her life. And that was where you know, she, she did the work that we'll be mainly talking about this evening. In 1933, she literally made headline news by becoming the first woman professor of philosophy in the UK. And this was reported in large headlines by many um, local and indeed national newspapers. It was a big event. She almost (laughs) went even further than that in 1939 when uh, G.E. Moore was retiring from Cambridge. She was a front runner for the chair of philosophy at Cambridge and in fact had a lot of support for that. But also, I fear, quite a lot of opposition as well, some of it quite clearly and straightforwardly motivated by sexism. Stebbing didn't get the chair. It, in fact, went to Wittgenstein. And uh, as a result, as I say, Stebbing stayed at Bedford the rest of her career. Bedford College itself was actually evacuated to Cambridge um, at the start of the war. So Stebbing spent the last few years of her life teaching Bedford students, but in borrowed Cambridge rooms. She also, in those last few years, uh, was very active in the financial and the the practical assistance of refugees from Central Europe. And that fed in ways that we'll perhaps talk about in in a little while into her her more political work as well. In in her 50s, Stebbing was diagnosed with cancer. It seemed to go into remission, but returned uh, very soon and very vehemently. And Stebbing died in a London hospital in 1943, just a few months before her 58th birthday. So that's the context that we'll be working within. It's 1885 to 1943. You've mentioned the war obviously being a kind of important historical context for thinking about perhaps especially her public philosophy. Mm. This was one of the other historical arcs that it might be nice to visit is the sort of arc of analytic philosophy, which is one lens against which she's regarded. For those of us who haven't had analytic philosophical training. Mike, would you mind telling us a bit about analytic philosophy and some of its main ideas? So one normally uh, regards analytic philosophy as originating in the work of Gottlob Frege, who's the founder of modern logic, modern quantification logic, which offered a far more powerful tool to analyse propositions, which hadn't been able to be analysed in traditional logic. Bertrand Russell, who some of you may well have heard of, who developed some of Frege's ideas, and G.E. Moore, who was a major influence on stepping together with Wittgenstein. Those are often seen as the four founding fathers of analytic philosophy, though, as perhaps I might say later, uh, Stebbing, I think, played a crucial role in that. We can, we can discuss that. So what's crucial in the development of analytic philosophy is the use of logic. 
Now, one might ask, well, what is analytic philosophy? One would say it's obviously philosophy that's concerned with analysis. And then comes the obvious objection that analysis has always been a part of philosophy, right from the ancient Greeks. So what is it that's distinctive about analytic philosophy? Now, what I see as, as distinctive is the role played by logic, the new logic that Frege and Russell developed. And in my, my own work, I've sort of developed or uh, tried to articulate a, a concept of analysis that I think is quite important to make sense of analytic philosophy that isn't how one might normally understand analysis, which is simply decomposition, breaking something down into its parts. And there's an older notion of analysis that goes back to the ancient Greek notion that was used in Euclidean geometry, where analysis means going back to principles by means of which you, you prove something. So the first I call de decompositional, the second regressive. But I think there's a third notion that's also implicit in analysis, but comes to the fore in analytic philosophy. And that's what I call interpretive analysis. And what happens there is that you try to reconceptualize, interpret a problematic proposition in a new form, typically by using the resources of logic in order to solve certain kinds of kinds of problems. So, I mean, I think the best way to explain what analytic philosophy means, what analytic and analytic philosophy means, is to think of it by analogy with analytic geometry. So now we distinguish analytic geometry from synthetic or Euclidean geometry, as, it, as it's called. And what's characteristic of analytic geometry is that you translate traditional problems of geometry into the language of algebra and arithmetic. Now, it happens that in traditional uh, Euclidean geometry, there are certain problems you simply can't solve by using your ruler and compass method. There's just certain kinds of constructions you, you can't make. And, and what Descartes and Feynman and others at the dawn of the early modern period ma managed to do was to translate those problems, traditional geometrical problems, into the language of arithmetic and al algebra. And that gave them a more powerful tool to solve the problems. And then you can translate back again. So I think one should see analytic philosophy as similar to analytic geometry, but where logic, if you like, replaces the arithmetic and analysis. So you have ordinary language. If you have a rich enough, more sophisticated logic by means of which to formalize and interpret the ordinary language proposition, you can make some headway in terms of analyzing it. So that, I, I would say, is what's distinctive of analytic philosophy. It's the use of interpretive analysis drawing on the resources of modern logic, quantification logic. You have suggested that we might see one of Susan Stebbing's works as the first textbook in analytic philosophy. Yeah, no, I mean, 19, 1930, it, it appeared. It's actually called a modern introduction to, to logic. And I think that's significant. It's not an introduction to modern logic. What's characteristic, I think, of her work is that she actually drew on traditional logic whilst at the same time trying to introduce modern logic, the logic of Frege and Russell. So this is why I, I, I say that when one takes a, a kind of broader view of the development of analytic philosophy, then Stebbing actually has a really, really crucial role. Not so many people would read more and maybe a bit more Russell and, and Wittgenstein, but they certainly read Susan Stebbing. And this was a major work in the 1930s. It covered all the topics that we normally associate traditionally with logic, the kind of thing one has in J.S. Mill's logic, for example, concerned with deduction and induction and so on. It introduces you to traditional Aristotelian logic, syllogistic theory, and so on. But at the same time, through that, and, and Sebbing specifically says she thinks that the theory of the syllogism is a little bit easier to grasp, that the basic ideas of logic, what validity is, for example, what it is to be um, valid in virtue of logical form, and so on. So there's a good way to introduce logic, but at the same time, you need to show that they're far more sophisticated techniques and concerns with all sorts of other things that were introduced by Frege and Russell. And that's what she does in that book. And that was enormously influential. That was the second edition in 1933. 
1973. She doesn't use the word analytic philosophy in it. That's a word actually that only comes comes in later. But I think one one could justifiably say that was the textbook that really, certainly as far as uh, making analytic philosophy popular or explaining analytic philosophy to a, to a broad audience, um, very important in in the UK, it was served as a as a textbook to introduce students to this area of philosophy. So in that respect, I think she was really really important. The rest of her work, I think, follows that same line. It's interesting to see that maybe the experience as a as a teacher finds its way into her work and a way of offering people different roads into logic, whether it's through Aristotelian logistic or more contemporary stuff. It seems like there's a mind of somebody in education there at work. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's characteristic of Debbie's career that she was an active teacher throughout. And in fact, a very, a very busy uh, teacher. She had a very full teaching timetable throughout and remained committed to that despite the success of some of the works that we're talking about this evening. So I think her teaching was as important to her really as, as her writing. I guess um, to maybe get a, a start on thinking about her ideas and language and one that maybe relates to her experience in the classroom as well and thinking about things more practically um, she seems to have been interested in natural language, uh, as well as the kind of more formal version of things that we get in logic and maybe philosophy of language nowadays. Why was that and what impact did it have on the way she thought? Yeah, I mean, Stebbing had a, a recurring theme in her work, really. It dates back to a modern introduction to logic, which Mike has just been talking about. It continues and in many ways intensifies for the rest of her career, is an appeal to the importance of close attention to the ways in which language is actually used in ordinary communities situations. This was unusual at the time. It would be simplistic to say that no other philosophers or no other analytic philosophers were paying attention to natural language, but certainly there was a tendency in the analytic tradition that Mike's just been talking about to see natural language is in some way a bit messy, a bit imperfect compared with the rigours of logical logical language and somehow to mislead or to obscure uh, arguments and something that philosophers should be, be careful of, really. Stebbing, I think, was unusual. And, and this is, as I say, throughout her philosophical career in her insistence, uh, not just on acknowledging that there are differences between logical and, and natural language, but actually her insistence on paying careful attention to what those differences are, how we might explain them and really seeing the meanings that come across in natural language as something that could be discussed systematically uh, rather than something to be dismissed as vague and impenetrable. And I think you're quite right, Claire, that in that she does sort of take on some of the views that are now very much commonplace in modern linguistics, but were, were very unusual at the time. That's interesting to see, you know, in this one thinker, the combination of sensitivity Mike was talking about to the ability to translate philosophical problems into this kind of new formal language, but then at the same time, an awareness that the way people communicate is in natural language and if we want to say things about logic that permeate the public sphere maybe we'll need to talk about that kind of speech too so the ordinary language school of philosophy and linguistics maybe was a a thing that came shortly after her period do you see her as a sort of forerunner to that or how do you see the connections there yes it's interesting if you say ordinary language philosophy to most philosophers philosophers they'll probably not think of stepping they'll probably think of work that was being done at at oxford they'll probably think about the years kind of immediately following the second world war names like jl austin peter strawson and so on are particularly uh, representative of that school of thought there are similarities there certainly both Stebbing and the so-called philosophers of ordinary language insisted on close attention to the ways in which we use language. I think potentially, at least for the ordinary language philosophers, 
it became more of a, a methodology or an end in its own right, as it were. J.L. Austin, for instance, argued that philosophers, before they could get down to the business of doing any philosophy at all, had to get very, very clear about the terms they were using, had to think intuitively about how they might use terms in different contexts and what different shades of meanings that would give them. Whereas Stebbing, I think, was more concerned with what we might call the practicalities of doing that, being clear about what words mean, being clear perhaps about ways in which context can affect and give different shades to meaning, but then getting on and applying that, getting on and looking at possible errors that people were were falling into or possible ways in which philosophical discussion might depart from ordinary discussion. It might be nice at this point to try and think a little bit about her as a public philosopher so that we can try and keep that thread alongside some of the more technical stuff. Peter, it's really nice to be doing a public philosophy event and finally get to talk about a philosopher who did a lot of public philosophy. Can you tell us a little bit about Stebbing's role as a public philosopher and how that came about? Yeah, it's great to be doing public philosophy about public philosophy. I mean, I was just going to say, just just to add to to what Mike and Siobhan have said already, it's maybe just worth saying, Stebbing was also a prolific worker within academic philosophy. So she published really widely. She was the president of the Mind Association and the Aristotelian Association which are kind of the two biggest UK-based philosophy societies. So she kind of had these credentials within the academy. But then in the 30s and the 40s, her work starts to turn towards this more popular audience. I mean, it's just a testament, I think, to the wide-ranging interests that she had and and also the wide-ranging sort of abilities to to write philosophy for different audiences. Sort of hard to imagine when she slept between this commitment to the school project, the societies, the lectureships, professorships. I mean, it seems just like an amazing breadth of things to be working on all at once. Yeah, exactly. And and also sort of a wide range of expertise as well. So, I mean, one of her popular texts, Philosophy and the Physicists, is this critique of the popular scientific writings of the early 20th century. And she frequently sort of describes herself as, as incompetent in understanding this stuff and so on, and as an amateur. But when you read the text, you realise she's really got a good sense of it. And that's demonstrated in the fact that she's able to articulate these ideas very clearly. The other text that kind of comes out of this period, or at least another text that comes out of this period, and and the first of her texts to be published with the Pelican imprint that was published by Penguin, is Thinking to Some Purpose. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I don't have mine to hand, so I had to show you. (laughs) Sorry, for the podcast, uh, Mike Beanie has just produced a Thinking to Some Purpose mug. It's my favourite mug, Thinking to Some Purpose. So Penguin issued a number of these mugs marking the, the, the publication of some of the most popular books. And Susan Stebbing, I saw it on King's Cross station one day I was completely gobsmacked there was Susan Stebbing's mug there so of course I had to buy it so yeah that shows how popular the book was at the time just thinking to some purpose there we are get the mug wonderful (laughs) So, so I love thinking to some purpose I think it's a really accessible text I think as a book it's a really good answer to the question which as philosophers we get really used to which is why should you study philosophy I think that if, if I were going to point anyone to one text in answer to that question it would be this one so it's written in 1939. It's it's a year before the dawn of the Second World War. And it's described in the original Pelican version as a manual to first aid in clear thinking, which I think is really interesting because there's kind of three things going on there. It's a manual. So like a car driver's manual, it's going to explain to us how to do something. And then the first aid part is interesting because it's also in learning to do whatever it is we're going to learn to do. We're going to learn to fix something or to heal something. And the thing that we're going to learn to do is to think clearly or to think to some purpose, which is where the title of the text comes from. 
So it's written, as I said, at the dawn of the Second World War. And, and Stebbing really thinks that getting a wide readership equipped with the tools of philosophical thinking, of simple logic, learning how to make the right inferences and spot the right kind of fallacies, she literally thinks it will, will help us save democracy. So I think it's a, a really interesting philosophical text for that reason. We're definitely going to probe Mike a little bit about some of the thinking on fallacies she does in a, in a few minutes. But I'm just wondering, were there many other people doing public philosophy at this time? And, and if so, how did her kind of output compare to them? Or, you know, were there sort of salient contrasts there? So, that, so there were other people doing public philosophy. So, so Mike mentioned Bertrand Russell already, who was and probably still is a household name. And Russell has this, this essay that he wrote in 1946 called Philosophy for Laymen, where he explains what he thinks the benefits of doing public philosophy are. He argues, you know, doing philosophy will help you as an individual to accrue virtues and to live the right kind of life. So he's going right back to Aristotelian idea of, of living a good life by being a wise person. So the difference between Russell and Stebbing is I think Russell's really giving off the idea that doing philosophy is an end in itself. It's something that's worth doing because it's a, it's intrinsically good in itself. Whereas what's quite different from that is in Stebbing, doing philosophy, thinking clearly is always a means towards some other end. I mean, going back to the title of that popular text, it's all thinking for Stebbing is thinking to some purpose. So that to me seems like a, a key difference between the two of them. So she's perhaps a little bit less idealistic about philosophy and maybe a bit more pragmatic. I totally agree with what Peter's just been saying. And I think I've got another difference in mind between Debbing and some of the other public philosophers of the time. And, and there were at the time as well in, in the 30s, quite a lot of books that were addressing uh, issues to do with what we would now call critical thinking, to addressing issues to do with spotting uh, fallacies and so on. But what really stands out for me about uh, thinking to some purpose is that it is packed with real life examples. It's absolutely full of examples that Stebbing has found uses of language, particularly by those with some sort of actual or assumed uh, authority. Um, there are extracts there from political speeches, from advertising slogans, from newspaper editorials, from published sermons and so on. And what Stemming's doing there is really using the sorts of techniques that Peter's been talking about and using the sorts of tools for analysis that she's developed in her logical career to, to really look at what's going on in those actual real life texts. And that, again, to me, gives it a really modern present day kind of flavour. You can see the benefit of the teacher element again. Stowing actually suggested uh, that a way to teach students to think it critically and to analyse arguments that were put to them would be to take articles from different newspapers reporting the same story and to compare the ways in which that story was told. Now, that's something that we actually do nowadays in, in, in linguistic analysis, but that was the first I'd heard of anyone suggesting it, and that was back in the 1930s. Brilliant idea. Yeah, I think that's one of the striking features of thinking to some purpose. I think what's interesting is, is it's kind of a weird combination of being both a historical artefact in the sense that the examples used are very specific to the 1930s. I mean, so for example, maybe we'll talk about this at some point, but she has this idea that when you're engaging in political discourse, you should look out for something that she calls potted thinking, which is sort of the use of empty slogans, which you, know, you might think is still going on in politics today. But the metaphor comes from potted meat, which is this sort of thing you might have found in a ration pack. So it's both these universal messages. I mean, it's a text that is as relevant today as it was when it's written, but packaged in these sort of interesting historical metaphors. I mean, if you did pick up this book and read it today, although, as Peter says, the examples, of course, are drawn from the 
1930s as fascism was on on the rise you can't help thinking my god have we really improved from this you think of all sorts of things that our politicians say i mean i kept thinking one would think of the arguments really bad arguments fallacious arguments that going on with regard to brexit the actual book begins with a prologue entitled are the english illogical I'm sure the Scots and the Welsh will be pleased. Yes, it's really only the English that are illogical as far as Brexit is concerned. And, and that frames the, the book in a way, that, that issue about, you know, we do make lots of fallacies. We say we also have a mistaken conception of what logic is. So she kind of opposes a sort of British view of the importance of common sense, often rather confusingly characterised in opposition to the French, who have very abstract principles and just think think them through very logically and come out with most absurd views. So she kind of opposes two different views, both of which I think in, in many ways are a misconception of what logic is. And then she gives you a, a far more reasonable conception of the use of logic. And I think that's that's a really good way of framing the book. And then as Peter and Chauvin says, there's lots of wonderful examples that show the ways in which we think badly, potted thinking, using analogies and metaphors and, 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 and lots of other things. She published Topics in Logic. Can you tell us a bit about her contributions on that front and maybe how she stands out as somebody thinking about logic in that era? Um, so, so I suppose there's two things if we've got time for both. One is the way in which she offers analyses of, of propositions to show. I mean, this is the sort of real hardcore philosophy, if you like, and, and some of the assumptions that come out of that. So, I mean, here's the example. I mean, this is taken from my very short in, introduction to analytic philosophy, where I have a chapter on Stebbing alongside Frege, Russell, Moore and Wittgenstein, the usual culprits. But I think it's important to recognise Stebbing's role because of the, the textbook. And, and the example I, I use, which I think is a good example to indicate the kind of thing that goes on in analytic philosophy, and Stebbing was concerned with. Let's take this proposition, which we might say, let's assume it's true. The average British woman has 1.9 children. Okay, the average British woman has 1.9 children. Let's, let's assume that that's true. And we seek to analyze it, to go back to my distinction between decomposition and interpreter. You know, we, we sort of decompose it. Well, what is the average British woman? Let's see if we can find out who she is. If we can find out who she is, then we can ask whether this person has 1.9 children. Now, that's clearly absurd, right? There's no, there's no such person as the average British woman. And yet we understand what's meant by the sentence. So, so the proposition calls out for analysis. And clearly, in this case, it's a, a straightforward example. One would say the analysis of that is if you add up the total number of children of British women and divide by the total number of women, you'll get the answer 1.9. So in other words, talk of the average British woman is just an abbreviation for talking about all the British women there and all their children. Okay, so this is an example where, if you like, the surface form of a sentence could easily mislead us. And you know, we go into the world and see if we can find the average British woman. You know, there's no such, such person. And even if there were, they couldn't have 1.9 children. But we understand what's meant. And Stebbing talks about indirect references, actually, if you like, implicitly referring to all the women and all their children in Britain at the time. So that the statement is just an abbreviation of a more complex statement. What you're doing in analysis is you're trying to unpack the original statement in order to make clear what you're really committed to when you say such a thing. So what we're committed to, if you like, when we say the average British woman has 1.9 children is not the existence of an average British woman, but the existence of all the women and all their children that there are in Britain. And then one is, one's asserting a relationship between them. So here we have the idea of directional analysis, which I think also gives rise to her concern with purpose, purpose of uh, analysis. What we do when we uh, analyse something is we're trying to find out, this was a word she used in the early 30s before she began to be a bit more critical of the notion. We're trying to uncover the basic facts that underlie a particular claim. So we have a claim about the average British woman, 
that rests on there being certain basic facts, namely there being women in Britain who have a certain number of children. Okay, so that's the idea. So analysis is essentially a way of going uh, a simple uh, sentence to a sentence that somehow displays more overtly, more explicitly, what you, as it were, to, to use the philosophical jargon, you're ontologically committed to. And that that's the kind of thing. So metaphysical analysis or directional analysis is an attempt to uncover the basic form of, of reality, the basic facts that underlie a particular claim. I'm just thinking about how that kind of analysis might play a role in her view on, on the public sphere. So this kind of clear thinking, this taking propositions and trying to figure out what motivates their utterance in the first place, for example, or to understand their linguistic context a bit better. How did this kind of thinking, how did she see it playing a role in, in healthy democracy? I think I think it's something that underlies especially her later work. I mean, the phrase clear thinking or thinking clearly comes up a lot. So it's something that Stebbing thinks is, is really important. So, so, I mean, going back to this idea of, of thinking to some purpose, for example, as a manual, something that I think kind of is unique about her approach to doing philosophy in the public sphere is an emphasis on the extent to which public philosophy is a two-way street. So it's not just about communicating information to an audience, but it's equipping them with the tools, for example, to be able to hold those in public office to account. So I talked about one of the examples, which was this idea of keeping an eye out for potted thinking. Another another example is, and this also relates to, I think, what Siobhan was saying earlier and, and the relationship between studying and, and discussions of natural language. I think another way in that she's quite prescient. So one of the kind of lessons in thinking to some purpose is we should be wary of what she calls emotive language. So she draws this distinction between what she calls scientific language and emotive language. So scientific language is and obviously we're philosophers, so you might question whether there is such a thing, but scientific language is language that just describes things objectively. Whereas emotive language is language that's designed to or will provoke some emotional response in, in a hearer or a reader. And basically Stebbing's point is that lots of language we see in, in, in say, political speeches in newspapers purports to be scientific. It's just telling us facts. But in fact, is is emotive language. Certain words, she says, have tied suggestions. So the example that she uses is newspaper articles refer to the doll instead of something more sort of clinical like unemployment benefit. I mean, I, I was thinking about this recently. I think a word that you might apply this to in today's political public discourse is something like woke right? Which if you describe someone as woke, it purports to just simply pick out some features of the way they go about thinking about the world, but it's often very designed to make you feel a certain way. So that's just one way in which Stebbing thinks being able to think clearly, i.e. think in the right kind of way, can help us preserve the democratic society that we have currently. Can I maybe offer an example that picks up exactly on what Peter's been saying there about the emotive language and the inappropriately emotive use of language? One of the main targets for Stebbing's analysis is Stanley Baldwin. There are a lot of examples from speeches by Stanley Baldwin, the many times uh, Conservative uh, Prime Minister. And I've just got a note here of a speech from Baldwin that she quotes in Thinking to Some Purpose. This was a speech in 1931 when he was running for election. He says, in this country of ours, there are tens of millions of quiet, decent folk. We are bound to think of them and no decent man can help thinking of them. And on he goes and on he goes. And Stebbing points out uh, that what he's doing here is appealing to feelings of fellowship and sympathy with quiet people made more effective by the use of 
this country of ours and decent folk. Her point being that these are simply emotive words. They're not actually adding to the argument or presenting anything to do with Baldwin's policies. And she calls him out for this repeatedly in thinking of some purpose. Can I also just draw a link between what I said is what she does in analysis, you know, interpreting a problematic sentence to what Peter mentioned is an important theme in thinking to some purpose, this idea of potted thinking. Okay, so to make that connection, you could say that the statement, the average British woman has 1.9 children, is a is a potted statement, right? You need to unpack it to understand what's going on. So in a way, what she's doing in her book is just an extension of that idea that, that is important to analytic philosophy, that we take a, a short sentence, an abbreviation, and we need to understand what's really going on. Now, this might be a more controversial example, but it's the kind of thing that Stebbing talks about. We might make reference to the English or the nation, or the government, and we make claims about the government does this, or whatever it might be. But that would be a kind of form of potted thinking, because it's not that there's a single coherent entity, certainly not in present time in Britain, you know, but the English government, the British government. I mean, there's a whole host of different people doing different kinds of things. And it's very easy to assume that we have a single term for something. There must be some in- single entity that's somehow coherent, and it might not be the case. So that when we actually analyse a statement, a, a policy that the government puts forward, we might see that it actually hides a number of rather different, often contradictory, incoherent um, policies. So what we're doing as political analysts would be to try and unpack the statements that that government ministers make in order to to understand at a deeper level what's going on. So I think that's really just an extension in the political sphere, the kind of thing she was doing, if you like, in in her uh, more philosophical, logical, metaphysical work. Just another example of potted thinking, and one that I think is really important when we're talking about Stebbing, is common sense, is references to common sense. Common sense philosophy, one of its heydays, is this period of time, particularly in the work of of G.E. Moore, who Stebbing frequently acknowledges as an influence on her work. But I think that, quite reasonably, Stebbing, maybe more than someone like Moore, is aware that common sense is a concept that needs unpacking. You know, throughout the pandemic in this country, particularly, we've seen lots of appeals to common sense, that common sense is the crutch we can rely on when we're not sure what to do and so on. But I think that Stebbing might reasonably worry that that concept is not unpacked, that thought is not taken out of its pot frequently enough, and it's gone stale. So anyway, so that's just to add to what Mike was saying, but I think that's another one that comes up a lot, especially in that chapter at the beginning of Thinking to Some Purpose, where she's really taking into account people like Stanley Baldwin for contrasting common sense with logical thinking and abstract reasoning. But, you know, it might actually be the case that when you unpack common sense, it just is logical reasoning, especially given that Stebbing thinks we all have this innate ability to think logically. So if anything is common to us, it's that. Well, I think it seems appropriate in the spirit of of Stebbing to give lots of examples, given that, you know, that was her way of getting ideas across. It's interesting as well, this thread of common sense philosophy, since in the history of philosophy, it's been used variously and hilariously by people as a kind of primer for presenting their own ideas. You know, this is just common sense. This is what everybody thinks. And then saying a thing nobody thinks, but it's as if it can play this warm up role in providing sympathetic context for what you're about to say. Mike, can you tell us a bit more about purposive or directed thinking in Stebbing's work on critical thinking? I, I briefly mentioned in, in terms of this idea of interpretive thinking. So it comes out of that concern with trying to uncover what 
a particular proposition that you might make in an abbreviated form, a kind of potter thinking, really commit you to. So that's one thing that I think is involved here. The other thing I think is just recognizing that when we um, use reasoning, it, it is with a particular purpose. We're trying to solve some practical problem that, that faces us at the time. So actually, the modern introduction to logic opens with this example of someone being on the beach and then the tide's coming in and someone shouts, look out. Okay, and suddenly the person on the beach realizes that, you know, they're below the line where the the sea is going to rise if it reaches high tide and that they better do something if they're not going to drown. And they see a line in the the rocks, which they interpret as the high water level. They realize there's a ledge above that and they think that therefore they should climb to that level and rest there so they don't get drowned. So this is an example where one might say you have to engage in a certain form of reasoning, but based on certain as if you like, in this case, empirical assumptions, the tide is about to come in, there's a rock above the high water line. Uh, therefore, if I want to uh, not be drowned, then I need to move to that higher point. So this is an example where you've got empirical assumptions grounded in a particular problem that's facing you, and then you're using logic in order to reason to some, some end, namely, I must move to the, to the high point if I don't want to be drowned. So that, I think, is an example of what she means by purpose of thinking. It always has to be rooted in concerns that we have, but to do it effectively, we have to respect or follow the laws of logic. And one thing that we can do as logicians, as philosophers, she would say, is to make explicit what is implicit in our reasoning practices and make people realize that this is how they should act. And so the other thing that I'd say is quite important in in her work is this conception, which is also throughout the late 19th century, especially in analytic philosophy, this idea that logic, as it's sometimes put as in an abbreviated form, normative rather than descriptive. In other words, when we formulate the laws of logic, they're not just descriptive of how we actually think, they're actually stating how we should think. In other words, they're prescriptive. Okay, and here's where I think it's important to recognize that even if we make fallacies in everyday life, we can be brought to recognize that they're fallacies. If we simply you know, ask someone a certain logical question, I mean, there's some good examples. In my, again, in my little very short introduction, I take the case of the ways on selection tests to suggest that there are all sorts of little problems that one can ask people to resolve often they can get them wrong first time round. So you can't rely on, as it were, just taking a a sort of survey of what people actually think in order to get at the laws of logic. You've got to recognise that sometimes people get things wrong. But what's important is that if they get them wrong, they can be brought to see why they're wrong. And that's why Stebbing writes these books in order to help people to realise how these fallacies arise and how to correct them and to recognise the, the logical rules that are actually in place. So that's why I say, and, and Stebbing agrees, that the logic is normative. And that's why there's a task for the logician, for the philosopher, to help us recognise what the logical rules are in order for it to help us in purpose of thinking. So it seems like maybe that she has a sort of optimism about how people can, with practice or with the right kind of example base learning become better at interrogating things in a way that's helpful yeah that's optimistic i'd say something deeper that it's grounded in basic abilities that most of us do in fact have if we can only be brought to see it i think that we also saw that task of bringing that to the fore as increasingly urgent didn't she that you know that that as the way that the political situation the social situation was going in the 30s she felt 
almost like a calling to help people to use those abilities to spot the paralysis and so on. Whereas before, she was perhaps more content to stay behind the scenes and to stay in her in her university appointments and so on. But I think she felt called to take a more public role. Power of language is obviously an important theme for her, but do we see big evidential marks of a kind of urgency around the politics of the time? Well, I think, I mean, Peter talked earlier about the kind of framework in which Thinking to Some Purpose is published. It was, I think, originally intended to be a series of lectures that Stebbing would give on the BBC. So, you know, a very public-facing set of presentations. The lectures themselves didn't happen, I think, because of various health issues that Stebbing was experiencing at the time. But it was a very early, very pioneering volume in the Pelican popular series. There's a good quote I have in front of me. I'm convinced of the urgent need for a democratic people to think clearly without the distortions due to unconscious bias and unrecognised ignorance. It's a brilliant mission statement, isn't it? Yeah. And, and she says it's the aim of this book to make a small effort in this direction towards identifying and overcoming failures in our thinking. So I can see the obvious desire to bring clarity in such fraught political times. Why were the scientists or the popular scientists of the day also such a target? That one is harder for me as a non-expert to see. So she published Philosophy and the Physicists. What, what's the main agenda there? Yeah, that is a good question. Something I've thought about is how to connect up the, the mission in thinking to some purpose, which is very wide ranging, which isn't really specific to any particular domain of discourse and which has this urgency about it, to philosophy and the physicists, which is essentially a critique of two scientists. The two people in in question are Sir James Jeans and Sir Arthur Eddington, who who basically were the sort of Professor Brian Cox or the Bill Nye of 1920s Britain. Eddington in particular was famous for popularising Einsteinian physics. So her, her critique is basically that these two popular scientific writers, she says that, you know, there's a lot of responsibility on their hands because we don't all have the time and effort and maybe the ability to go out and learn theoretical physics or learn about Einsteinian physics. So it's on their shoulders to explain to us this fundamental stuff about the world around us. And then she basically thinks they really don't do a very good job of taking on board that responsibility. Two criticisms she has particularly They sort of have this gratuitous use of metaphor and personification. So particularly, she gets very frustrated by the fact that even when they say things like, they they say things like nature, it shouldn't be anthropomorphized. And then later, they'll say things like nature selected this or that for this reason and so on. The other thing she's very critical of is both of them have these texts that were widely read. Jeans is also published in the Pelican series. So it's kind of interesting that they can go alongside one another. And both of them have a final chapter where they start doing philosophy. And they say, you know, modern physics gives us an argument for the existence of God and modern physics, both of them think, gives us an argument for idealism, which is this view which has a long history in philosophy. Broadly speaking, the view that reality is mental, that everything exists in the mind of something, which, which is a view that Stebbing and Russell and Moore were all sort of starkly opposed to. And so she kind of just thinks that they're really bad philosophers as well. You know, in terms of the question of why that or if that is as urgent an issue as something like what's going on in thinking to some purpose, I'm not sure. But I think that you can see at least that she has this claim that there's a lot of responsibility and they're just not doing a very good job of following through with that. And it relates to her interest in how we use language as well, because part of the responsibility that Peter's talked about that Stebbing felt they were misusing was in their tendency to use ordinary natural language as if it could explain the very technical innovations of contemporary science. 
So, for instance, um, Eddington has this very dramatic way of describing the physical universe, uh, which is made up of electric particles flying around in space. But he, instead of sort of trying to explain it in a scientific way, he says things like, I'm stepping onto a plank, but it has no solidity. How do I know I'm not going to fall through it? And Stebbing takes issue with this. She basically does a kind of ordinary language philosophy move on this and says, well, if a, pl if a plank isn't solid, what on earth does solid mean? Because surely solid is having the, the properties of a plank, a marble surface and so on. So she actually sees it as quite dangerous that Eddington is in a way trying to scare people. Um, I think she would put it as strongly as that by using apparently ordinary terms to describe understandings of the world which are scientific and are not ordinary. We're not just about to sink through the floor because it's made up of particles, but Eddington would perhaps mislead his readership into thinking that we might. So there's a real worry about trying to make things understandable or digestible and that having the unfortunate consequence of really distorting the meaning of things in a damaging way. And possibly for a particular motivation. I mean, Peter talks about proof of, of the deity and so on. You know, I think Stebbing saw a very clear agenda behind all this. I, mean, I think one can see what's happening here as an application of a very Morian view about, about philosophy here that uh, apply to things that yeah, physicists say. I mean, this is tricky ground today. I mean, on the one hand, we want to respect the views of scientists, say, with the pandemic. On the other hand, there is this tendency of physicists or scientists generally to take a step beyond and start drawing philosophical conclusions from those which don't necessarily follow from what they're saying. Or as Siobhan said, to try and perhaps reconceptualize those things in, in ordinary language and hence running the risk of being misleading. And I think that the message is very clear. All of us have to be alert both to the benefits, but also to the potential you know, dangers of scientists speaking, if you like, outside their expertise or drawing philosophical conclusions from. But as I say, obviously in this pandemic, it's, it's quite dangerous because I think there's been a tendency just to assume that scientists are saying things they shouldn't anyway, and we should be more sceptical than perhaps we, we should be at the present time. So it's a fine line to draw here, but I think she was certainly concerned to reject some of the more extreme things that scientists do, but more by way of drawing philosophical conclusions from scientific uh, ideas. I, th I think something that she finds particularly frustrating and related to what you're saying, Mike, you know, you don't want to draw too many limits on what scientists can say. But I think what she finds frustrating with these particular writers is they both acknowledge they don't have any philosophical training and that there is a limit to what a scientist should say. And then they say it anyway, and they sort of make it the whole crux of their piece of writing. So I think maybe that's to some extent where she might draw the line. She's giving us the tools to interrogate what are legitimate inferences from people who are ultimately the right people, maybe to express the data or the, the facts, and then maybe to interrogate where people go beyond the evidence or into sort of more metaphysical considerations or something. OK, so I have a few questions here and I might start with one from Dana. Uh, Dana says, can we use Stebbing's work as a way to sort of deal with misinformation in media or social media, translating her thinking to the very modern era? I guess yes would be the answer there. I mean, I think there are tools which Stebbing offers in work, like Thinking to Some Purpose, and, and Peter has alluded to this earlier, which can be transferred across to present day examples. As Peter said, uh, in some ways, Thinking to Some Purpose seems quite dated. You know, there are adverts there which are from the 1930s and in some ways they can seem quite amusing. But some of the features that Stelling picks up on, for instance, in the advertising slogans, the use of lots and lots of personal pronouns, you want this, we all do this, they recommend this. She asks us to kind of unpick who's being referred to here. What is it that we're being drawn into? And she sort of identifies a sense of an advertisement as something that sets up a problem 
that is going to be solved by the product on offer. And I think some of these things we can translate almost wholesale across into modern text. So that's a yes, I think, to that one. The striking thing when I was reading this, not to go on about it, but with this idea of potted thinking, that sounds to me exactly like what a tweet is. So I can't help reading that section of thinking to some purpose and thinking about Twitter. You literally can't say very much, but the message spreads. And I suppose the same is true with any other social media platform as well. I guess her point would just be question these statements, find out if there's there's any kind of truth or you know nutrients in the potted meat or not. Okay, I have a question specifically for Michael. Is any convergence between the thinking of Stebbing and of Wittgenstein on Morian metaphysics specifically and metaphysics in general? This is quite tricky because I think Stebbing was influenced by Wittgenstein, but at a time when, I mean, we're talking about Wittgenstein's Tractatus, the sort of key work that was published in 1921, that was hugely influential on Cambridge philosophy and throughout the analytic tradition. And it was beginning to be discussed and applied throughout Britain at the time. It had had a major influence on the so-called logical positivists, the people of the Vienna, Vienna Circle, who were very pro-science, but also very anti-metaphysical. There's so many different components. It's a matter of kind of juggling with all of them. But I mean, one thing that I think historically uh, Susan Stebbing did was that she was responsible for introducing logical positivism into Britain. She she invited Carnap and some of the other logical positivists to speak in in Britain. Uh, A.J. Eyre was then the spokesperson of um, logical positivism in, in Britain. And Stebbing was also quite critical of his work as well. I mean, it's often thought that analytic philosophy was anti-metaphysical. Now, that's, I think, only true of a certain period in analytic philosophy and is perhaps true of the the logical positivist. Arguably, it's true of Wittgenstein, but it certainly wasn't true of the early analytic philosophers, so Frege and Russell and more. And when uh, Susan Stebbing first confronts or tries to engage with logical positivism, she says outright that I'm concerned with metaphysics. What does she mean by metaphysics? I think she primarily means trying to understand the basic presuppositions of our thinking. And everyone has certain presuppositions. And she is actually concerned to identify the presuppositions of the kind of analysis that Moore and Wittgenstein and others were doing at the time. And one of those key presuppositions was that, to go back to something I said earlier on, that there are basic facts that we're trying to uncover that, as it were, underwrite, underpin the claims uh, that that we make. Later, towards the end of the 1930s, she starts to be, uh, in common with other philosophers at the time, critical of the idea that you could ever uncover uh, an ultimate level of basic facts. And that's something that Wittgenstein himself did. So through the 1930s, you have a transition from, as far as the Cambridge School of Analysis is concerned, with a view that there are basic facts, a metaphysical level to uncover, to a view that's a little bit more question about whether there's some ultimate level. So I think Susan Stebbing is moving from a more very pro-metaphysical view to a view that's perhaps less. I mean, she comes and something I didn't talk about specifically, but she actually draws a distinction between what she calls same level and new level or logical analysis and metaphysical analysis. So to go back to my example, you give an initial 
formalization of a sentence in logic, that's your logical analysis, but um, you still need to specify what facts are that make that true. Now, when one starts to become critical about whether there is an ultimate level of of facts, you can still keep in place the logical analysis. So what happens throughout the 1930s is a rejection of metaphysical analysis, but a holding on to logical analysis. And logical analysis, you can then see, simply clarify our statements. And that's what one finds in her later work. Her work in thinking to some purpose, philosophy and the physicists and so I think is just concerned with clarifying logically what's involved in certain claims rather than any bigger metaphysical project of trying to uncover the real nature of the universe or something. So it's a very complicated story. I haven't answered that question very, very well. But I think, yeah, the, the, the key message is that here's where Stemming's views um, changed through the course of the 1930s at the same time as our, her understanding of Wittgenstein and Wittgenstein's own view changes throughout the 19. 19- 1920s to 1930s. I just want to mention, because there may have been a huge amount of overlap between the answer to the next question and what you've just said, but I want to mention a question from Ralph. So it seems to me that Stebbing went beyond the usual preoccupations of analytic philosophy in attacking the philosophical mystifications of physics. Can you elaborate on how Stebbing differed from her analytical peers? So I can see how that kind of ties into some of the things you've said. I'm wondering, do you see this kind of space for trying to clarify what's going on or the correct way to think about metaphysics in the work on physics in the in the popular physics works or is this something you see more in her scholarly work he might be better able to talk about physics plus in the, the physics what i will say that what's characteristic of these quite influential papers that she wrote in the early 1930s about the nature of analysis, she tries to elucidate the assumptions, the metaphysical assumptions that underlie the whole project of analysis, the kind of analysis that Moore introduced. And at the end, she comes to the conclusion that actually, I mean, this is her honesty as well, which I think is to her credit, that these can't be justified. She said, look, these are other presuppositions that must hold if this form of analysis is to be possible. But then she she comes to the conclusion that they can't actually be, be justified. And th- this is something that is in common to other philosophers at the time. They realise that it's actually hard to justify these metaphysical assumptions. But that doesn't mean that analysis itself, as it were, is rejected, because there are different forms of analysis. That's why, again, going to back to the distinctions I drew earlier, it's important to distinguish forms of analysis, because I think, you know, even if you reject a certain kind of metaphysical analysis, there's still a kind of ordinary language or logical analysis that you can still engage in. The project, which is exactly what she does in her later work, of trying to get clear about the the things that we say. And that's what carries over to the philosophy and the physicists. The physicists say certain things. When you dig down, you realise that they might be committed to all sorts of rather silly things. So you need to show why they're silly. But at the same time, you can give a logical analysis, if you like, or um, that shows what they you know, might sensibly be be taken to, to be um, saying. So it's breaking the, if you like, gap between an ordinary language interpretation that makes some sense of it and the, the tendency that we always have to push that analysis further, deeper, perhaps into regions that we're not able to say something meaningful about or whatever. And, and that's what she's still concerned with. Just say a little bit about philosophy and the physicist and, and what other people were doing. So one thing that's is interesting is there's a review of that book by C.D. Broad, who is who's another well-known contemporary of hers and, and was a metaphysician. And the impression you get reading that review is a little bit, I'm not sure why you've bothered engaging with these people. So, so Broad says, Stebbing's criticism of these popular physicists is a bit like shooting baby birds. You know, it's like, what's the point? We all know they're kind of rubbish at making these philosophical moves on the basis of what they're doing in science and so on. So that's just one perspective on that question of how similar is what she's doing in philosophy and the physicists to to what other people were thinking. 
I'm almost inclined to say this is where one perhaps should point out some of the abuse, if you like, that Stebbing, Susan Stebbing had to face. You mentioned C.D. Broad's review. I mean, this quote up here, this is how he finishes his review of Susan Stebbing. He says, in conclusion, I express the opinion that we owe a debt of gratitude to her. The labour cannot have been particularly pleasant, and she must have felt that she might be better occupied than in clearing up the messes made by amateur philosophers. Then is, this is what he says. But at the end of it, she must have enjoyed something of the exhilaration of a good housewife who has at last completed her spring cleaning, and were it not for the ill-omened associations of the phrase, we might congratulate her and her readers on the house being now swept and garnished. I think that is a stunningly sexist end to a review, and you know, she was having to face that. But it also, it actually illustrates the point that Peter said, you know, what is she doing? Is she simply clearing up the work of, uh, of others? And is this really valuable or, or not? And I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. Um, and you know, this is exactly what she does in thinking to some purpose in philosophy and, and the physicist. So she not only does that, but she has to contend with that kind of statement from people like C.D. Broad. A really important reminder of, yeah, what she must have been up against and what bravery it must have required to be constantly pushing pushing things out into the public like that. And what comes out, I think, is that she didn't uh, you know, take the bait. She, she would simply get on with her own work. I mean, that was extraordinary. She had the most utmost integrity, despite all the things. And there's lots of other examples that some, some of them nicely illustrated in Siobhan's biography of, of Susan Stem. Despite all that, she simply got on and, and did her work. I think she was absolutely incredible woman in, in that respect. It seems like a lot of the tools that she's advocating for other people might help her in that task. If part of what you think C.D. Broad is up to in framing things in that way is this kind of project of denigration and nastiness, then maybe the most powerful thing you can do is, is, is not given any air. So a related question, how does public philosophy practiced by Stebbing before 1945 differ from the public philosophy practiced by women philosophers today in the UK? So I know that's really specific, but I'm just wondering if any of you have thoughts on that kind of angle of things on her versus people doing philosophy in public these days. I'm not sure whether, whether Mike and Siobhan agree, but I still think there's a lot more men doing public philosophy than women. So people that might come to mind if you think of public philosophers today might be people like Daniel Dennett or Zizek. So I don't know. Then she was somewhat standing against the grain and being a woman doing public philosophy. And maybe that is not that different today. I mean, I think the way she does public philosophy is different to the way that lots of people who are doing public philosophy today are doing it. I mean, I still think lots of people doing public philosophy today are doing it in a kind of transfer of knowledge way is the way I like to think of it. It's, I'm the person who knows a lot about this and I'm just going to communicate that all to you and it's up to you what you do with it. Whereas Stebbing wasn't like that, you know, she wasn't, especially with text, I think, to some purpose, and it wasn't necessarily about trying to get you to learn this and that and this, it was trying to get you to do things. So that seems like an, like an important difference between Stebbing and, and maybe because since Stebbing's time, there's more of a clear difference today between philosophy and something like critical thinking. So maybe what Stebbing's doing, you'd find in texts of critical thinking, but I think that's an important difference. Yeah, I mean, one thing that Stebbing certainly wasn't was self-promotional. Um, and when she was in the public domain, when she was doing her, her lectures or, or her radio talks or publishing books like Thinking to Some Purpose, it, it was never about look at me doing philosophy or, or look at my ideas. It was, you know, exactly as we've been saying, it was about getting people to think for themselves and, and showing them examples of how they might intellectually at least might live their lives and so I think I mean I don't want to criticize any particular current day public philosophers but it was, certainly was never about self-promotion. 
I suppose as well, the possibility of anonymity was kind of available to her or, you know, relative anonymity in a way that maybe makes it less attractive a prospect for women philosophers to get into the public sphere and start speaking their mind. So this is a very last quick question from Nathan. If you could recommend one sort of paper or book or just something, some aspect of her writing that you found particularly striking, uh, you know, what would it be and why? I'll tell you what I really like, and this is going to be a surprising choice. I really like a modern elementary logic which was a book that Stebbing published right at the end of her life. It's a much shorter, much simpler text than a modern introduction to logic, specifically designed to people who were learning learning logic for themselves, perhaps without a tutor, perhaps returning from the war. It's an amazing text because it does introduce a lot of logical principles in a very user-friendly way, but it also includes those kind of real-life examples and that sort of concentration on natural language use that we were talking about earlier. For me, the book has to be thinking to some purpose, it's a whole book. If you wanted a chapter, the, the chapter that Peter mentioned on, on Potter thinking would be a good introduction to what she's she talking about. It's, it's brilliant, really. It might, might seem dated, but actually there's so many analogies with what's happening today that, that you, you know, you can't help but see that that is just really is a brilliant book. I, I would also, I have to say, think it's some purpose. I think that we should all be reading that uh, as a set text in undergraduate philosophy degrees in A-level philosophy classes. So I think everybody should be reading that. Okay, so get the book, buy the mug, thank you to some purpose and elementary logic as well. Okay, thank you so much for our speakers. Next Tuesday, we've got What's Wrong with Rights, in which our panel will discuss the limitations of the human rights model. So have a nice evening. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.